Hello, and welcome to Places to Sleep. My name is Sarah, and in every episode, I will be reading a place description from a different work of fiction. I recommend that you set a sleep timer. Usually, these place descriptions are sort of stitched together. Allow yourself to visualize the spaces, or if you're not someone who visualizes, just let yourself drift off. I find that when I'm having a hard time sleeping, giving my brain a place to be can really help. So that's what this podcast is. It's a place for you to sleep. Tonight's places come from Lost in a Good Book by Jasper Ford, a whimsical literary detective series featuring the detective by the name of Thursday Next. Enjoy. I dreamt I was on an island somewhere, hot and dry. The palms languid in the slight breeze. The sky a deep blue. The sunlight pure and clear. I trod barefoot in the surf, the water cooling my feet as I walked. There was a wrecked ship, all broken masts and tangled rigging, resting on the reef a hundred yards from the shore. As I watched, I could see a naked man climb aboard the ship, rummage on the deck, pull on a pair of trousers, and disappear below. After waiting a moment or two and not seeing him again, I walked farther along the beach, where I found Landon sitting under a palm tree, gazing at me with a smile on his face. I looked around for the tea, but Landon simply smiled. I've not been here long, but I've learned a trick or two. Remember that place in Winchester where we had scones that were warm from the oven? You remember, on the second floor, when it was raining outside, and the man with the umbrella? Darjeeling or Assam? asked the waitress. Darjeeling, I replied, and two cream teas, strawberry for me and quince for my friend. The island had gone. In its place was the tea room in Winchester. The waitress scribbled a note, smiled, and departed. The rooms were packed with amiable-looking middle-aged couples dressed in to eat. It was, not surprisingly, just as I remembered it. That was a neat trick, I exclaimed. Not to do with me, replied Landon, grinning. This is all yours, every last bit of it. The smells, the sounds, everything. I looked around in silent wonderment. I can remember all this. Not quite, there's look at our fellow tea drinkers again. I turned in my chair and scanned the room. 
all the couples were, more or less, identical. Each was a middle-aged couple dressed in tweed and twittering in a home county's twang. They weren't really eating or talking coherently. They were just moving and mumbling to give the impression of a packed tea room. Fascinating, isn't it? said Landon excitedly. Since you can't actually remember anything about who was here, your mind has just filled in the room with an amalgam of who you might expect to see in a tea shop in Winchester. Memnonic wallpaper, so to speak. There is nothing in this room that won't be familiar. The cutlery is your mother's, and the pictures on the walls are all odd mixes of the ones that we had in the house. The waitress is a compound of Lottie from your lunch with Bowden and the woman in the chip shop. Every blank space in your memory has been filled with something that you do remember, a sort of shuffling of facts to fill in the gaps. I blinked twice, but Osaka was far behind. I closed the book, carefully placed it in my pocket, and looked around. I was in a long, dark, wood-paneled corridor, with bookshelves that reached from the richly carpeted floor to the vaulted ceiling. The carpet was elegantly patterned and the ceiling was decorated with rich moldings that depicted scenes from the classics, each cornice supporting the marble bust of an author. High above me, spaced at regular intervals, were finely decorated circular apertures through which light gained entry and reflected off of the polished wood, reinforcing serious mood of the library. Running down the center of the corridor was a long row of reading tables, each with a green-shaded brass lamp. The library appeared endless. In both directions, the corridor vanished into darkness, with no definable end. But this wasn't important. Describing the library would be like going to see a Turner and commenting on the frame. On all the walls, end after end, shelf after shelf, were books. Hundreds, thousands, millions of books. Hardbacks, paperbacks, leather-bound volumes, uncorrected proofs, handwritten manuscripts, everything. I stepped closer. I stepped closer and rested my fingertips lightly on the pristine volumes. They felt warm to the touch, so I leaned closer and pressed my ear to the spines. I could hear a distant hum, the rumble of machinery, 
people talking, traffic, seagulls, laughter, waves on rocks, wind in the winter branches of trees, distant thunder, heavy rain, children playing, a blacksmith's hammer, a million sounds all happening together. And then, in a revelatory moment, the clouds slid back from my mind and a crystal clear understanding of the very nature of books shone upon me. They weren't just collections of words arranged neatly on a page to give the impression of reality. Each of these volumes was reality. The similarity of these books to the copies I had read back home was no more than the similarity a photograph has to its subject. These books were alive. I walked slowly down the corridor, running my fingers along the spines and listening to the comfortable pat-pat-pat sound they made every now and then, recognizing a familiar title. After a couple of hundred yards, I came across a junction where a second corridor crossed the first. In the middle of the crossway was a large circular void with a wrought iron rail and a spiral staircase bolted securely. And a spiral staircase bolted securely to one side. I peered cautiously down. Not more than 30 feet below me, I could see another floor exactly like this one. But in the middle of that floor was another circular void through which I could see another floor, and another, and another, and so on, to the depths of the library. I looked up. It was the same above me. More circular light wells and the spiral staircase reaching up into dizzy heights above. I leaned on the balcony and looked about me at the vast library once again. Well, I said to no one in particular, I don't think I'm in Osaka anymore. This last place requires maybe a little bit of context. It is a conversation between Thursday Next, the main character, and her father, who is a time traveler that is currently on the run from the Chrono Guard, who are sort of like time cops. And they're sitting in a riverbank, waiting six months a fast-forwarded time so that they can try and do something at the end of that. 
Lesson 1 in Time Travel, Thursday. First of all, we are all time travelers. The vast majority of us manage only one day per day. Now, if we accelerate ourselves like so, the clouds gathered speed above our heads, and the trees shook faster in the light breeze. By the light of the moon, I could see that the pace of the river had increased dramatically. A convoy of lorries sped past us in sudden accelerated movement. This is about twenty days per day, every minute compressed into about three seconds. Any slower, and we would be visible. As it is, an outside observer might think he saw a man and a woman sitting under these trees, but if he looked again, we would be gone. Ever thought you saw someone, then looked again, only to find them gone? Sure. Chronoguard traffic moving through. The dawn was breaking, and presently a German Wehrmacht patrol found our abandoned car and dashed around looking for us before a breakdown truck appeared and took the Humber away. More cars rushed along the road, and the clouds sped rapidly across the sky. Pretty, isn't it? said my father. I miss all this, but I have so little time these days. At fifty dapers, we'd still have to wait a good three or four days for Landon's accident. I've, I have a dental appointment, so we're going to have to pick it up. The clouds sped faster. Cars and pedestrians, nothing more than blurs. The shadow of the trees, cast by the sun, traversed rapidly and lengthened in the afternoon sun. Pretty soon it was evening, and the clouds were tinged with pink before the rapidly gathering gloom overtook the day, and the stars appeared, followed by the moon, which arced rapidly across the sky. The stars spun around the pole star as the sky grew blue with the early dawn, and the sun began its rapid climb in the east. The sun now rose and set in under ten seconds. Pedestrians were invisible to us as we were to them, and a car had to be parked for at least two hours for us to see it at all. But the leaves, they turned from green to brown as we watched, the outer branches a blur of movement, the river a soft, undulating mirror without so much as a ripple. The plants died off as we watched, the sky grew more overcast, and the spells of dark were now much longer than the light. Flecks of light showed along the road where traffic moved, and opposite us an abandoned cooper wagon 
was rapidly stripped of spares and then dumped upside down in the river. Eight and a half thousand tapers, explained my father. This is my favorite bit. Watch the leaves. What do you think, sweet pea? I never get bored of this, Dad. Do you travel like this all the time? Never this slow. This is just for tourists. We usually approach speeds of ten billion or more dapers. If you want to go backward, you have to go faster still. Go backward by going forward faster? That's enough for now, sweet pea. Just enjoy yourself and watch. I pulled myself closer to him as the air grew chilly and a heavy blanket of snow covered the road and forest around us. Happy New Year, said my father. Snowdrops, I cried in delight as green shoots nuzzled through the snow and flowered, their heads angling towards the low sun. Then the snow was gone and the river rose again, and small amounts of detritus gathered around the upturned cooper wagon, which rusted as we watched. The sun flashed past us, higher and higher in the sky, and soon there were daffodils and crocuses. Ah, I said in surprise, as a shoot from a small shrub started to grow up my trouser leg. Train them away from your body, explained my father, diverting the course of a bramble that was trying to ensnare him with the palm of his hand. My shoot pushed against my hand like a small green worm and moved off in another direction. I did the same with others that threatened me, but Dad went one step farther and with a practiced hand, trained his bramble into a pretty bow. I've known students literally rooted to the spot, explained my father. It's where the phrase comes from, but it can be fun, too. He had an operative named Jekyll, who once trained a 400-year-old oak into a heart as a present boyfriend. Thank you for listening to Places to Sleep. I hope that you've drifted off along the way, but if you haven't, that's okay. Sometimes, even when you can't sleep, it's nice to think about places where maybe you could.